You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore dada. So, um, I think the biggest news that I can find of the day is that Dwight Schrute has gone on Twitter to urge the Seahawks to go out and get Baker Mayfield, saying, Browns, Baker, Battlestar Galactica. Okay, that's that's not really what he said. Um, what he said was the Seahawks should 100% nab Baker Mayfield. He's already been proven excellent, and with some coaching and some amazing receivers, uh, can reach greatness. Pull the trigger, Hawks. I thought the way that I phrased it was a little bit better, and basically I just kind of summarized it. Um, and also I, I really wanted to try to come up with some kind of a cheesy joke, something along the lines of maybe Dwight should be assistant to the general manager. I know there's a good joke in there somewhere, and I can't find it, but it's there somewhere. And no, this isn't actually interesting news. I just, I really wanted to make some office jokes today. Sorry to the non-office fans. If the office isn't your thing, but you're still looking for a good laugh, I would encourage you to go out and find the Jameis Winston video. Uh, Once every couple weeks, he puts out a workout video, and it's always absurd. It's always just the dumbest thing. At this point, I have to assume they're just trolling, but it's pretty ridiculous. It's like if the bench press met the shake weight. It's the best I can do to describe it. But uh, this is a podcast I can't show you visually. Just go find Don't Don't Google what I described it as, please. That's not going to give you anything you want. Just look for Jameis Winston's... Um, I don't know why I keep wanting to call him Jameson Williams. Jameis Winston's workout video. Now, you're probably going to have to sift through a bunch, but that's not a bad thing. Just enjoy your day. Um, In NFL slash Packers news, this came out a couple days ago. The Athletics' Mark Caboli reports the Steelers quarterback Kenny Pickett worked exclusively with the third-string offense in OTAs and minicamp. Pickett's time with the third-string offense bolsters reports that Mitch Trubisky has a clear lead for the Week 1 starting job. Caboli writes, unless Trubisky gets hurt or plays terribly in camp and in the preseason, it's difficult to imagine a scenario where he doesn't start the season as the number one. Why do I say that this is NFL slash Packers news? Because Kenny Pickett has some of the highest odds to win the Offensive Rookie of the Year um, award. It sounds at this point like we can remove him from that conversation. So Christian Watson, Romeo Dobbs, whoever your favorite Offensive Rookie for the Packers is, just got bumped up a spot in my opinion. It's possible that he still ends up playing and being great and all that, but it's, it's, it's pretty unlikely especially that team. I mean, that's it's pretty much a disaster over there. Plus, if Trubisky's good, that's just going to make me smile. In other interesting NFL news, apparently Le'Veon Bell and Adrian Peterson are going to just start punching each other and stuff. I don't know why. I know Adrian Peterson 
has financial issues and it seems like when you run out of money you box because it makes you a lot of money i don't know who watches boxing i mean i i know mma is popular i feel like nobody watches boxing but apparently you still get like 100 million not them i'm not saying they will but it's like you can easily just just like oh here's 100 million dollars to go punch somebody it's it's kind of crazy i have no idea how much these guys are going to make with this but as far as what is going on, the fight will take place in July. So far, the only thing we know about the match is that it's going to take place July 30th at Crypto.com Arena in Los Angeles. It'll be uh, the first boxing match for both guys, so neither one will have any experience advantage over the other. I don't necessarily know if that's true. They maybe don't have, like, professional matches, but I could have sworn I heard that Le'Veon Bell had some training in this area. I could be entirely wrong, and in fact, I think the reason why I think that is... Um, a guy that I was working with, uh, he goes by the name of the Fantasy Football Counselor. He's got his whole fantasy football thing, but um, one of the other things he started doing was, I don't know what you would call it, but he kind of tries to get into beefs with football players because it elevates his his name. Kind of gave him a bad rep, but I, I think he's okay with that because, you know, again, when you can engage with NFL players. Anyways, he challenged Le'Veon Bell to a fight. Um, and I think Le'Veon said he would, but it never came through or whatever, but I thought it was based on the fact that he knew that Le'Veon Bell boxed. I could be wrong about that. goes on to say, Bell Peterson is the undercard at the boxing event. The main event for the boxing card will be two YouTube stars going at it with Austin McBroom taking on Ann Eason Gibb. <laughs> okay. And I use the word stars very loosely here because I have not heard of either of them. Yeah, that's true. Maybe they should let Peterson... Blah, 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 blah. According to at least one betting site, Bell has betting odds of minus 175, which makes him the favorite over Peterson, who has odds at plus 135. Both players are about the same height and weight, but Bell is younger. He's 30, while Peterson is 37, and I think that seven-year difference is probably a big reason why Bell is favored. First of all, my initial reaction to this is that Adrian Peterson is going to destroy Le'Veon Bell. If if Le'Veon Bell, if I'm wrong and and he doesn't have an advantage, and I mean a boxing advantage like prior knowledge he knows what he's doing i think peterson's gonna just smother destroy the guy smother's the wrong word you can talk about same height weight all you want i don't care adrian peterson is an absolute tank and Le'Veon bell is not a tank and i i am i'm actually stunned by this information i would have thought adrian peterson was like 6'2 225 and Le'Veon bell was like six foot 195. Le'Veon Bell's 6'1", 225. He's bigger than Adrian Peterson. That's nuts. That actually kind of reminds me of when I found out Des Bryant wasn't actually that big. I thought Des Bryant was like 6'4", 230. No, he's he's smaller dude. I mean, not small, but I, I the way he played was like one of those just big guys, big go-up-and-get-it type receivers. I thought he was 6'4", 6'5". He's 6'2". Anyways, it doesn't really matter, but I, I thought that was incredibly interesting, and I doubt I'm going to be able to watch that fight, but I really want to, because that is, that is wild. And I still don't care about height and weight, and I still don't care about age. If, if the training is the same, give me Adrian Peterson. Um, in Vikings news, um, this probably isn't super unknown. We've actually talked about this kind of several times, but it's just more information about what's coming with the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, The Athletics' Chad Graff and Arif Hassan both describe Vikings coach Kevin O'Connell's offense as pass-happy. 
In the larger context of a post about if Cousins can take a step forward in empirical play, both Graf and Hassan note that they believe that Cousins can crack 4,500 passing yards in 2022. Cousins' best output in his four years in Minnesota to date has been 40, uh, basically 4,300 yards in 2018. Graf also believes Cousins could be in the ballpark of 40 touchdowns. If Cousins does 4,500 passing yards and 40 touchdowns, he'd be in the QB1 line a la Matthew Stafford's bump last season. Now, I don't exactly know what constitutes pass-happy, but just taking a look at the run-pass uh, ratios for each team, Minnesota was sitting at... Um, 58% to 42%, 58% being passing, 42% being running. Yes, that is more passing than running, but as I've said before, um, the the lowest number for any team was 50-50. So although they are slightly above uh, average, or I guess right at average 58%, they are slightly lower than half the league in terms of how often they pass. In fact, they actually tied the Green Bay Packers. The Packers, the Texans, and Minnesota are all at 58% in terms of how often they pass. So it's pretty close to right in the middle of the the league. I guess all three teams would be tied for 17th. So I would have to assume if you're talking pass happy, you're kind of getting up into the 62%. That would put them up in the top 10. Miami and the Giants are at 60. Atlanta, 61 Jacksonville, Kansas City at 62, Chargers, Raiders, uh, Jets, and Pittsburgh at 63, and then Tampa Bay is at 66. Um, Kind of interesting information about the Raiders. Um, That might change, obviously, because they have a lot of turnover there as far as coaching staff and everything else, a lot of changes being made with them and a few of these other teams. But if they are that quote-unquote pass-happy over there, that's going to obviously help out Devontae Adams quite a bit. But anyways, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Again, the the Packers and the Minnesota Vikings are right at about, I I think it looks like they kind of rounded these, but if you look at the bars, it actually shows um, a little bit more detail. So maybe we're not tied. The Packers are actually ahead, then Houston, then Minnesota. So the Packers would be 17, Houston would be 18, Minnesota would be 19th. But um, if we assume that um, the Packers maybe lean a little bit more on the run and the Vikings lean a lot more on the pass, then not only are the Vikings going to surpass the Packers, but probably by it'll, it'll be a pretty widening margin. And that probably makes a lot of people nervous because the assumption is passing is, is how you win in the NFL. And if the Vikings start passing more and the Packers start running more, that means more success for um, Minnesota and less for us. But that doesn't really seem to be the case. Um, Again, you got Pittsburgh and the Giants and the uh, Jaguars and the Falcons and the Giants. These are all pass-happy teams. You've got Tennessee, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Indy, Cleveland, New England, very run-heavy teams. Varying degrees of success there, but, but again, New England was dominant last year. Tennessee is obviously a very good team. The Philadelphia, kind of iffy, but there's a lot of assumptions that this could be a very, very good team. And I don't think anybody's really looking at it saying they would be good, but they run too much, so they're going to suck. Actually, if we look at week eight, the week that um, Devontae was not playing, the Packers were the seventh most run-heavy team in the NFL that week. Now, granted, a lot of these teams are extremely pass-happy that week. I don't know why that would be, but multiple teams in the 70% and whatnot, so it's going to push the Packers down. But still, they, they go from 58 down to 53% passing. So, I don't know. Well, it, it's interesting enough to look at, and it'll be worth monitoring. I, I don't think it's going to be necessarily massively drastic. I mean, you know, th- there's a lot of talk about 
the Packers becoming run heavy. And again, you really got to define your terms if you're going to look into stuff like that because extremely like insane run heavy offense means 50-50. So for middle of the pack now, what 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 would it mean if the Packers are really leaning on the run a lot? I, I don't know. If the difference between average and psychotic rushing attempts is between 50 and 58, point is I wouldn't expect too much of a change, I guess. A drastic change would be to go from like 58 to 56 or 55, which is probably not even going to be very noticeable. And then finally, in Bears slash Packers news, there was an article by The Athletic, how the Bills, Bears, Chargers, and Rams shifted the NFL pass rushing landscape. I don't exactly know. I I still haven't figured out what the title has anything to do with the article, but it kind of just goes through and looks at each team. Not, Not every team. It just picks a few, and the Bears are one of them. Um, and it looks at teams that got better and teams that got worse. And um, of course, I have to bring it up because they have the Bears as getting worse. So we got to talk about it. But also, there is a chart that showed last year um, based on what does this come from? It's some different site that I don't think I have access to. True Media. I don't exactly know what that is. I didn't bother looking it up because I don't need to be paying for more subscriptions, especially just to get a, a third opinion on pressure rate. I have SIS and PFF. I don't need a third website telling me no it's actually this number but um, again skipping down quite a ways skipping past all the teams that are going to improve and got so much better Buffalo was good and then they added Von Miller they're going to be so good blah 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 moving all the way down scrolling scrolling Chicago Bears when you get to the part where it says teams that took a hit key additions edge rusher Al-Kadin Muhammad from the Colts key departures Khalil Mack Akeem Hicks Bilal Nichols and Eddie Goldman (laughs) Favorite part of the whole article, it says here, analysis, who's actually left in Chicago? That is a very good question. And again, Bears fans are funny because they try to minimize this. I'm like, dude, everybody left. and like, well, Khalil was not that good anymore, and Hakeem Hicks is not that good anymore. It's like, dude, your whole team left. Anybody that did anything for this team just left. Goes on to say, plus, edge rusher Robert Quinn set out mandatory minicamp, and that wasn't well received by new coach Matt Eberflus. Goes on to give more detail about Quinn, which I've talked about before, but again, everyone's going to talk about how many sacks he got, therefore he's elite, therefore the Bears are fine, but it says Quinn more than picked up for num- uh, for the numerous injuries across the Bears' defensive line last season with 18.5 sacks, which ranked second in the NFL, only behind T.J. Watt with 22.5. Quinn's pressure rate was good in 2021, but not top of the league good at 11.6%, which ranked 32nd. Obviously, we know about pressure rate. My personal thought about 11.6 is it's fine but it is far from anything super elite. So the the sack rate and the pressure rate are so absolutely insane. Kenny Clark regularly hits between 10 and 12%, and he gets about six sacks maybe in a season. Rashawn Gary blows that 11.6% out of the water. He doesn't get anywhere near 18 and a half sacks. Now, granted, he has a low sack percentage, which isn't great, but the point is it is so unbelievably unsustainable. If you'd have told me he had like a 17% pressure rate and that was any bit consistent you would look at it and say he had a great year and and you know he was dominant he wasn't dominant there was just a really unbelievably high rate at which you when you pressured the quarterback you also brought him down goes on to say the bears will likely ask a lot from muhammad still an 8.1 percent pressure rate from muhammad will need to improve to make an impact that is garbage just so we're very clear anything under 10 percent is bad also, Travis Gibson will be one to lo- watch along the edges. Chicago will lean on his 7 sacks and 11.3% pressure rate to account for the significant shifting of the guard up front. Again, he had 7 sacks and basically the exact same 
rate as Robert Quinn, and seven sacks is is reasonable. Even that might be slightly high, but that's that's a little bit more what you'd expect from an 11% pressure rate. Obviously, it depends on attempts and whatnot. But the point is, looking at last year, Chicago ranked uh, 27th with a 27.9% pressure rate, which sounds high, but that's across the entire team. So adding up the pressures from both edge rushers, your defensive tackles, and anybody else that might be coming on a blitz or whatever. As a team, 27.9% of snaps, they were able to generate a pressure, and they lost Khalil, Akeem, Belial, and Eddie Goldman. And yes, there were injuries, but they were ranked 27th, and they just got worse. And again, Bears fans don't understand this because they ranked 4th in sacks with 49. So again, it's like we still have a really good defense. We still... No, that was a massively inflated number. It's 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 like a bubble that's about to burst. Like it it's it's a fake number and underlying the the fake veneer. Here here's a really weird example. Remember those Wiley Coyote cartoons when he would go run and try to catch the guy and he doesn't realize he's off the cliff, and then what happens is his body drops out but his head stays there. People are looking straight into the eyes of the Chicago Bears and are saying, "See his head's still there." And it's like you don't understand. The body has already dropped out and there's no solid ground beneath you. You're going to fall, and you're going to fall far, and it's going to be horrific. Just because the head's still in the air doesn't mean everything's okay. It's already fallen. The ground is already gone. The bottom broke out. Anyways, I want to go down to the the overall chart because it's something that um, I haven't really looked at before. I've done it maybe once before, and it wasn't even to this degree, but I, I remember I projected in 2019 that the Packers would have the best pass rush, and I got absolutely crucified because the Bears were just coming off 2018, and the Vikings had a really dominant defensive line, and so I, I got kind of crucified for that. But I just looked at pressure percentages across the front. That was, you know, after we brought in Zedarius and Preston, and we had all these different guys. And I just said, you know, if you actually add up the pressure percentages across our front compared to the pressure percentages of the Bears, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the Packers are better. And of course, that is exactly what happened in 2019. The Packers did have the best pass rush unit. But anyways, this is uh, pressure percentages for each team. And remember, we, we didn't have Zadarius. We, we lost so many guys along this defensive line, some, some for just a week or two, some for the season. Whitney Merciless was a great addition, but he came in late, and then he immediately went out, and we didn't really see the guy. Despite all those issues, despite not having all of our guys and not having everything that we needed, the Packers actually ranked fourth, 33.2%, so right at one-third of the time when the opposing quarterback snapped the ball, we were able to generate a pressure. So that is pretty encouraging. Um, Obviously, health is never, you never know what's going to happen. So that could end up biting us again, which is going to hurt because, you know, we have less guys to work with this year. But again, if you just look at the pieces, look at Rashawn Gary, look at Kenny Clark, look at Preston, which I do think Preston's going to regress, but hopefully not too much. You look at the additions of Jerron Reed, which again, I'm not a huge fan of. You got Dean Lowry, who's a little bit better than people expect. And of course, Devontae Wyatt, who hopefully can be an absolute wrecking ball along that defensive line. I, I am hopeful that he'll be able to get his. It may be a little bit of a Rashawn Gary situation with Devontae Wyatt, but but again, I think you, you draft older, experienced guys like that with the expe- expectation that they, they start, kind of hit the ground running a little bit more than, than maybe a 21-year-old rookie would. So the uh, point is, 
The Packers have the potential to go up a little bit from 33%, which is already a really, really good number. The the teams above that would be the Cowboys at 34.4, the Bills at 34.8, so very close, and then the Dolphins were quite a bit ahead with 37%. Um, and, you know, the, the reason the Packers did not get any love as a pass rush unit is, as always, despite pressures, there weren't enough sacks. They had 39 sacks, which ranked 15th. And actually, it's not even all that uncommon. The Cowboys, who are ahead of us, ranked uh, 13th in sacks, which is kind of surprising with, uh, you know, one of the top sack guys in the NFL on their team. Uh, the Bills, who are number two, ranked 11th. The Dolphins, who blew everybody out of the water in pressures, ranked 5th in sacks. The Raiders, who are 6th in pressures, ranked 20... Is that an 8 or a 0? I think it's a 0. 20th, using a stupid font. Point is, in, in kind of... Oddly so, there's very little correlation between, I mean, there is some correlation, but very little between pressures and sacks, not not nearly as much as you would expect. Again, the Bears were 27th in pressures and 4th in sacks. Titans were 25th in pressures, 9th in sacks. The Steelers, 21st in pressures, 1st in sacks. The Vikings were 18th in pressures, 2nd in sacks. It's very odd. It's, it's, it's almost like they're completely separable which is weird because they obviously are not. You cannot get a sack without a pressure. It's very weird. We might as well take a break right here. If you like the show, if you like what I'm doing here, I would appreciate your support on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Also, for the one person that signed up for my sub stack, I do apologize that that has gone dormant. Um, I am planning on getting back into that a little bit. It's just been, as you can probably tell, pretty hectic and... Uh, Trying to get that all squared away. But I've also recruited the help of Mr. Sam Holman. Um, I've been talking with him about possibly writing some stuff for me. So he's going to be putting together some articles for the Substack. So that is going to be at packernet.substack.com is where you can find that. Packernet.substack.com. It does have my, if you're interested in it, the um, 2023 Big Board is the last article that I put up there. It's like 300 some odd prospects that are ranked based on, you know, my scouting formula that I use for 2022, just applied it to 2023, and there you go. So it'll give you a little bit of a heads up of uh, who, at least I believe, some of the top prospects are going to be. Some of it is pretty consensus. Some of it are going to be like, you know, the consensus very much disagrees, but definitely keep an eye on the guys, those guys in particular, because nobody's talking about them. Anyways, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. 
Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you may remember a few days ago, a week ago, whatever, I had talked about the comparison between this Packers team and the 1996 Packers team as far as the parallel in which the 90s Packers team lost their star receiver in Sterling Sharp. And when that happened, there was their number two guy who hadn't really done much. He slowly worked his way up year over year, eventually climbed his way to about 600 yards, And then when that number one guy left and the number two guy stepped into the number one spot, he exploded, right? So the comparison was Lazard and Robert Brooks. I was um, reading an article here. This is from Go Long. Tyler Dunn wrote it about Sammy Watkins. And there was a part a little bit further down that kind of triggered a thought because he pointed to another parallel from that exact same team. I want to read a little snippet of this here. It says, Think back to the last two Packers teams that won Super Bowls. They were piloted by all-time greats at quarterbacks, but both teams also had locker rooms built to withstand adversity. Ron Wolf understood this as much as any GM. It's an imperfect comparison, but Wolf's decision to roll the dice on Andre Risen in late November of that 1996 season paid off. Despite Risen's off-field issues and propensity to burn more bridges than opposing secondaries, and despite not signing him two years prior, Wolf took a deep breath and viewed this wide receiver as a missing piece. He was right. Ryzen's spunk was an asset, and his touchdown catch inside the Superdome in Super Bowl 31 will loop for an eternity. So it's not exactly the same kind of a comparison as Lazard to Robert Brooks in terms of excitement level, right? Um, the idea of this guy who hasn't been great suddenly exploding and possibly having a bigger year than what, you know, Devontae typically had. At least that's what Robert Brooks did in regard to Sterling Sharp. He, he When I say he exploded, he absolutely went off. I'm not going to recover all the stats and all that, but with Ryzen, and, and again, this was a little bit of a later acquisition, but there wasn't a massive contribution throughout the season. The point is he was needed at certain points, and he, he sort of made those one or two plays that you needed. That includes the Super Bowl, obviously. Very first, um, well, second Green Bay Packers play of the entire Super Bowl. The first was a uh, one-yard run from Edgar Bennett, and then second and nine, Brett Favre uncorks a 54-yard touchdown pass to Andre Ryzen. Um, again, most people want, if Sammy Watkins is going to contribute, for him to be a big contributor, right? 
I mean, we all understand that Sammy Watkins was drafted number four overall, which for a wide receiver is insane. If you look back at his draft analysis, a legitimate number one caliber receiver who stepped into the field as a true freshman and made an immediate game-changing impact, was slowed by injuries as a sophomore but responded with a strong junior season and capped his career with one of the most impactful receivers in school history, has rare speed, soft hands, big playability to change NFL defensive backs as a rookie, a top 10 cinch challenge defensive backs. I was going to say that sentence didn't make sense. Um, You look at his strengths. This is his draft profile, obviously. Exceptional football playing speed can flat out fly and take the top off defense. Has world-class track speed. Extends outside his frame and plucks the ball. Outstanding body control and agility. Tracks the ball well over his shoulder and is a natural hands catcher who can make an average quarterback look good. Consistently turns two-yard gains into 15-yard chunks, possesses big-time playmaking ability, and is very effective creating in the open field on bubble screens and quick-hitting short lateral tosses, which is going to make Packer fans, you know, the radars going up when you hear that one. Uh, superb run after the catch ability, good burst out of his cuts to separate, has game-breaking return ability, and is a threat to score every time he touches the ball, has a strong support structure. Talking about his family. So one of the higher regarded wide receivers to come out in a very, very long time. And, and the point is, I think Packer fans want to believe that that is the version we can get. And it's still possible. But I think what has been proven about Sammy Watkins' career is that he's been more of a guy that occasionally shows up and, and has big games, occasionally shows up and has big plays, including you know one, one of his more notable contributions was his contribution for the Chiefs on a play in the Super Bowl. And so effectively, although he's a different style of wide receiver, you're kind of getting sort of an MVS. He's not a consistent uh, contributor. He's not consistently good. He's not consistently getting you yards and touchdowns. He's a guy that will disappear for a while, maybe getting a catch here and there, and then suddenly will blow up. He'll get that 54-yard touchdown. You know, he, he's, he's had 200-yard receiving games where he's just completely blown up. Um, it's more intermittent. And so, although it's not perfect, I do think that is a decent parallel and, and sort of a expectation. Lazard is our Robert Brooks. Watkins is our Andre Rise. And the other interesting parallel here is the Brett Favre MVP run. Remember, Brett Favre won three MVPs in a row. Now, granted, he won the Super Bowl on his second one, but it's another similarity. Brett Favre was in the midst of his three-time MVP career. Aaron Rodgers is going into his... Um, into a year in which if he gets it, it's his third year. And again, seems unlikely, but in 1996, Brett Favre won his MVP after losing Sterling Sharp because of guys like Robert Brooks, Lazard, Andre Risen, Watkins. And so obviously none of this is 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 more interesting than than reality. Obviously anything can happen. Lazard can have a garbage year. Watkins can be awesome. Maybe he doesn't even make the team. I mean, there's a wide range of possibilities for a lot of these guys. By the way, if you want a another parallel that you're not going to want to hear, the Packers did draft a wide receiver in the second round by the name of Derek Mays. He played in seven games and caught six passes for 46 yards. And two touchdowns, though. So there you go. On top of that, they also got two interior offensive linemen in the mid-rounds, Mike Flanagan and Marco Rivera. Both of those guys ended up being quite good offensive linemen. Looking at you, Sean Ryan and Zach Tom. By the way, uh, Mike Flanagan was taken in the third round. Marco Rivera was taken in the sixth round. So Mike Flanagan is Sean Ryan, Marco Rivera, Zach Tom. I'm just saying, man. I'm just saying. 
It doesn't look like either of them started that year, but they went on to play and have, have good careers. I'm just saying, man, seeing a lot of parallels here. You got a dominant, dominant 1996 defense led by an elite pass rusher and a real good secondary. You got an MVP quarterback who just lost his star receiver and an expectation that maybe the offense isn't going to be quite as good, except it is. I'm just saying. And anyway, since we're talking about uh, parallels as far as this guy or that guy, I did find another athletic article that I thought was pretty interesting, and they they highlighted something that um, I thought made a lot of sense. They were trying to make sense of how good are the Vikings pass rushers going to be. And they're kind of highlighting what I've talked about with Zadarius in particular, in which, you know, the guy really had one good year, and that's kind of it. And it really highlights that and talks about, you know, what are the odds that, that he ends up kind of replicating that or whatever. And it goes in and looks at his pressures by year. Um, also mentioning that, you know, he, he wasn't necessarily a starter. He's more of a rota- rotational guy at first. But if you look at his pressures, 17, 26, 40, 61, 105, and then 59, and then last year was 2. And what the article kind of goes on to say is usually, because getting over 100 pressures is very, very rare. Usually when you see that, even if it's characteristic of a spike, it's usually a very, very good player who's consistently shown to be a good player. So for example, Von Miller had one year at 105, just like Zadarius. However, unlike Zadarius, who's cracked 60 pressures once in his career, if you look at Von Miller over the course of his entire career, outside of that one year, 74, 79, 83, 64, 77, 82, it's, it's like a straight line across between, you know, usually around 75-ish, but the range is 64 to 83. If you look at Khalil Mack, his highest pressure number was 98, and um, it's kind of a straight line down from there, but it's still relatively consistent, 82, 79, 73, 70, and then 59 point is between 2015 and 2020 at least until 2019 he's right in that 70 to 80 range the entire time and then there's just one minor spike up to 98 so it's it's a it's normal to have a spike it basically never gets replicated either way but it's uh, it's also very rare for a guy like Zadarius to do it because he's not this 70 to 80 pressure pass rusher guy the article says Smith's spike is unique among players generally regarded as high-level pass rushers. While most elite edge rushers have a peak year that stands out from the rest, they generally find a stable level that is still well above their peers. That's not the case for Smith, who has two seasons, about 60 pressures, and little else of note. Goes on to say, to see if there were any historical examples of edge rushers with Smith's career trajectory, we'll look through PFF's database to see which players had a similar peak production year without any other seasons above 70 pressures. There are only three other players who fit the criteria says one is Crosby, Max Crosby they're talking about, but he hasn't been in the league long enough, so they're not going to use him. Another is Daniil Hunter, who is in this article, so we're not going to use him. The only other person, and they said the best comparison that we can find, is Robert Quinn, who we've been talking about quite a bit. It says the best comparator is Robert Quinn, a veteran who hit his peak in terms of total pressures in 2013. His pressure chart looks pretty similar to Smith's. If you look at Robert Quinn, he had 36, 45, 91, and then 53, down to 18, 22, and then 44, 39. So 2015 and 2016, it says were skewed because he missed half the season, but there is a pretty straight line across outside of that, kind of hovering around 40, 36, 45, 53, 40, 39. So the point is, and the, the major point of the article is, the, the peak year means almost nothing. You look at the straight line that's somewhere between, you know, 36 and 53 and say this is where you expect this guy to fall because this is what he is. 
And I think too many people look at the 91 and say, man, th- this is how good he is. It's just a matter of can he get back there, you know, when healthy. This this is one of those when healthy things. Well, he's had injuries and all that stuff, but when he's healthy, he's this. No, he's not. He's absolutely not. He says, the problem is that we don't know what Smith's true average is, which makes sense because there's been not only injuries, but then when he was with Baltimore, he was a part-time guy. So there's not too ma- there's not a large enough sample size of full seasons in which he didn't blow up. But of the two that exist, he was right at about 60. It says his two other seasons of about 60 pressures might be a useful barometer. We also know that in his first three seasons with the Ravens, he averaged 55 pressures per 600 pass rushing snaps, which is the line, which is in line with that estimate of 60 pressures. It goes on to say you can assume he got a little bit better with experience, but then it goes on to say that he also has an injury. Uh, his back injury might impact his level of play, so it kind of balances itself out, I guess. So the larger point was Zedarius Smith, who is now unfortunately an opponent of ours, and we know he's a good football player. I'm not trying to say he isn't. He's talented. He can line up in any spot. He can wreck a play. He's got a lethal bull rush, violent football player, tenacious, doesn't quit, all that stuff. But the point is, any expectation of him returning to his 2019 form is silly. Just as silly as it was to expect the Bears to return to their 2018 form, just as silly as it is for, you know, to assume that Daniil Hunter will return to his 2019 form, he again is another one that's that's very similar. He's shown consistently to be in that 60 range. He has one big breakout year in 2019, followed by injury, so now you've got the injury adding on top of it. But if he returns to form, it doesn't mean returning to 97 pressures. It means returning to about 67, you know, between, say, 50, call it 60 to 70, which is good. But I think the 2018 version of Zadarius Smith and Daniil Hunter is is most likely what you're looking at, and that assumes that they're not hampered by their very recent injury histories. So, I mean, you, you can assume whatever you want. You can, you know, draw whatever conclusions you want. That's what I'm going to be operating from as far as an expectation. Anything can happen. They can absolutely blow up. Maybe the scheme just causes them to have a second spike year. I don't know. I, I can't you know, of, of all the, the the stuff they've shown us, that's not really a thing. I suppose you could say Robert Quinn had a second spike if you just look at his sacks, but again, his pressures did not spike. And and Zadarius kind of had a similar situation like that in 2020, the year he actually won his, um, or got the Pro Bowl nod. And I mentioned he was not nearly as good of a football player, but, you know, because he was in his second year, they kind of went ahead and, and gave him the nod. Second year of, of showing to be quite good. But the point is, his sacks were inflated. The pressures dropped off significantly. So his overall play was inflated. It wasn't as good as people thought it was. But because he got snubbed the year before, and they wanted to give him the credit of sort of doing it, quote-unquote, two years in a row and having a bunch of sacks and everything, they gave it to him. But he was a significantly worse player in 2020 than 2019. And that doesn't mean bad. It just means 2019 was such an absolutely flukish, freakish season, right? I, I mentioned how Khalil Mack has never had a season like that, which just goes to show how insane that is. So I thought it was a really good article by uh, Arif Hassan. If you have an athletic subscription, you can go look at all the data and everything that they put together. But um, that is sort of the expectation. And listen, it's still a good pass rush unit. If we say Zadarius is going to get 60 pressures and uh, Daniil is going to get 65 you're talking about um, Emmanuel Agba had 61 pressures. He ranked 17th in pressures. Um, Preston Smith was right at 63. If you're talking 65, that would be Sam Hubbard ranked 12th. So you're talking two top 20 pass rushers, if, if, if that holds up. So again, still very good numbers. Not exactly Rashawn Gary's 87 pressures number, but you know, good. By the way, that does kind of just go to show or highlight how good Rashawn Gary is. 
87 pressures. Now, maybe that's just sort of a spike. I don't know. We'll have to see how, how that all pans out. But if we just go back and look at, at Von Miller, who, again, is one of the best pass rushers, at least in, in modern times, by far, he's never hit 87 outside of his spike year. His highest was 83. Khalil Mack has never hit 87 outside of his spike year. Rashawn basically did it his first year as a full-time pass rusher. That's pretty wild. Since we're on it, and, and I'm looking at Rashawn right now, you, you know what else is really amazing about Rashawn Gary that I guess I, I have not highlighted enough? Um, not only was he dominant, a 90 overall grade and a 90 pass rush grade, but how unbelievably consistent he was. His lowest grade pass rushing was a 55. He only had two below a 60, only one at 60. So basically every single game was just incredible. I mean, he never had back-to-back bad games, not to say he had any bad games, but his first not super wonderful game came in uh, week five against Cincinnati. Prior to that, it was all 70s. After that, 72 and then a 90 against Washington. He had a 56 against Arizona, then 74, 66, 72, 79. Then he had his 60.8 against Baltimore, and then uh, 85, 74, and then closed out the season with a 90, and then in the playoffs, an 87. Just consistent, 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 consistent. It's so unbelievably rare to see something like that. And for me, the, the, the consistency is what really gets gives me confidence that it's real, you know? Because there are a lot of guys who have high grades or whatever or high numbers because of, you know, numbers can be fluky. You can have one good year. Um, grades can be fluky if you have like a handful of really, really good years or, or see, uh, games. You know, if you've got like a 98 and a 95 and a 96 and, and a couple 80s, but then you could also have 40s and 30s and stuff and still average out in the, in the high 80s or whatever. I look at that and I get nervous because it's, it's first of all, you're, I don't know that you're a very good player because consistency is, is part of what makes a good player. And so if 50% of your games are not good, it's hard to call you a good player, even if it averages out to, to good overall. But beyond that, I'm just concerned about, are you going to be able to sustain that? If the only thing that makes you good is that you're elite half of the year, what if you're not elite half of the year? What if you're just good half of the year or decent half of the year? The confidence that I have in Rashawn Gary is, is, is becoming the consistency, which was an issue for him. And it was the same with Jair Alexander. He showed flashes of being real good, but it just it wasn't there. And with, with Rashawn, if you look at it previously, you know, the, the pressures would show up as, as a percentage. And I mentioned that a long time ago is why I started having confidence in him is because although he didn't get many opportunities, the percentages were quite good. But even then, the, the grades were not good. His pass rush numbers looked good, but the grades, for whatever reason, probably due to consistency on a down-to-down basis, were not very good. And that was somewhat of a concern because it meant that he had some potential. He showed that he could rush the passer on occasion, but there were so many flaws on a down-to-down basis, right? He'd have one good play and then like three bad plays or whatever the ratio shakes out to be. And so it, it kind of makes you nervous. Like he's, he's got it, but he doesn't quite get it. At this point, after that year, he gets it. He has both the athleticism and the ability, but also on a down-to-down basis, he's getting it. And by the way, his run defense grade was, was fine. He's not just a one-trick pony. Now, granted, the, the grades are much more inconsistent on run defense. His overall grade is 70, but this is kind of the kind of thing that makes me nervous. Again, I don't super care. 
Um, I think he has time to figure it out. I think he has the ability to do it. And if you're a dominant pass rusher and a mediocre run defender, I'm fine with that. I don't care. But, um, you know, 57, 50, 53, terrible start. Then 78, 76, 82, 47, 50, 49. So, again, this is kind of the example of the inconsistency that makes me nervous. But the fact of the matter is, number one priority is that you're a very, I'm fighting through a yawn here, very good pass rusher. And if you can complement that with a 70 overall run defense grade, even if once in a while you're not super great at it, I, I will take that any day of the week. But as I look at it, I'm saying, he's got this pass rush thing figured out. He doesn't exactly have the run defense thing figured out. Even though he's got a 70 overall grade, there's a lot of inconsistency there. And maybe it just has to do with the fact that he's being unleashed as a pass rusher. You know, you're maybe a little less hesitant, waiting to see if it's a run, and you over-pursue and those kinds of... It can hurt you. Whatever. Go get the quarterback. I don't care. Oh, shoot, there's a 20-yard run. That sucks. Now sack the quarterback and make up for it. I'm sorry. I, I, I just do not want to sacrifice pass rush to uh, stop the run. It's just not a trade I'm willing to make. Let Quay Walker and Devondre Campbell and the safeties figure it out. Anyways, I'm going to go ahead and leave it at that. You folks have yourselves a fantabulous day. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.